0: All right, so we're doing something different today, and we're going to be studying the book of Habakkuk in one lesson. So I see people are, are I see a range of looks in the room here about <laughs> about that, and, and the reason I wanted to study that is because actually there's a few verses in there that are really foundational that touch on some pretty amazing, significant things in the New Testament that. Uh, Actually, this contains some of the most important lines in the entire Old Testament. And there's one verse in here in particular that's quoted in three books of the New Testament. And there, I think there's some other things that tie into a lot of other things in the New Testament as well. And that the line there is in Habakkuk chapter 2, depending on which Bible you have, verse 3 or 4, it says, The righteous will live by faith. That's where this line comes from. And that's in Romans chapter 1, it's in Galatians, I think chapter 3, and also in Hebrews chapter 10. So it's really the foundation of, of a lot of Christian teaching comes out of this book. And some people have considered this statement here to be basically the theme of the entire book of Romans, a righteous to live by faith. <laughs> so... um And the other thing I like about this book is it's a prophet who is wrestling with God. And a lot of times we have questions. The things that we don't understand, that don't make sense to us, we see things that don't fit in with how we think God should be running the universe. And we're not the only ones. There have been many examples of people who have struggled with this in the past and have questioned God. And and Abraham is one, and and uh, there there have been there have been others along the way. A, a lot of the prophets did this. So and Habakkuk asked some, I would say, timeless questions. The questions that keep coming up over and over again. And he asked two very good questions, and he also draws some pretty powerful conclusions in here. So uh, one of the things I want to do here is. Uh, to, to try to locate this in time a little bit, it's always good to get a, get a context. You know, Why is this book written? What's going on? Uh, what is this all about? Habakkuk, unfortunately for us, Habakkuk is not mentioned in other books of the Bible that would help us to pin him down historically. The only place he's mentioned is in the rather unusual story of Bell and the Dragon, which is in the long version of Daniel in the Septuagint, so you might have run across that or you might not have. But that doesn't really help us a whole lot with locating this in time. But I want to try to understand the historical context for this. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, so it's about 1,400 years before Christ, so Moses is about to die, and he gives his farewell address, and he's, he's telling the people what's going to happen in the future. And it has something to do with how they respond. And he says, basically, he says near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he says, if you obey God and you do all the things that he says, things are going to turn out great for you. He says, on the other hand, if you disobey what I'm telling you and you abandon God, it's going to be an unbelievable, unmitigated catastrophe for you. It said, in fact, you're going to end up getting all off into captivity in a foreign land. And um, so he warns them. And then he says, and, and but even after that happens, that God is merciful and he will bring you back from that foreign land when you repent. So I just want to give a little, to be able to appreciate what's going on in this story and, and what, what the prophet is talking about I want to give you a little overview of Old Testament history, just kind of a quick one minute thumbnail sketch. Okay, so about 1,400 years before Christ, Moses gives his farewell address, he dies, and then Joshua leads the people into the promised land. About 400 years after that, around the year 1000 BC, I like nice round numbers, David is king. All right, after David David, uh, dies, his son Solomon Solomon becomes king while David is still alive, and then after and then uh, after being king for forty years, Solomon dies. So I'm going to give you just two or three dates here in Old Testament history. All right. So fourteen hundred years before Christ, Moses dies. Uh, about a thousand years before Christ, David is the king. Uh, 931 BC, David's son Solomon is king. He dies, and then the kingdom is split into two. The northern kingdom is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. And the two dates here 722 BC, the northern kingdom uh, falls to the Assyrians, the northern king of Israel, and then 586. B.C. is the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians and they get taken into captivity in Babylon. So that's that's uh, that's basically a rough outline. I'm going to put a little more detail in the notes. So the events that Habakkuk is talking about, this is before uh, Judah gets hauled into captivity in Babylon. So this is sometime before 586 B.C., probably sometime in the 600s. Okay, And so I want to give you a little bit of background for what's going on at this point in time. I'll turn to Second Chronicles just to appreciate the spiritual condition of Judah and the time right before they get taken off into captivity in Babylon. So Manasseh is one of the last kings of Judah. He was king for a long time. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the Gentiles, whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. For he turned and rebuilt the high places Hezekiah, his father, has broken down, raised up pillars for the Baals, made groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord where the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts in the house of the Lord. He caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, bird augury, sorcery, consulted mediums and divining spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to anger even set a carved image and a cast image, idols he had made in the house of God, where God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house in Jerusalem, which I chose out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land I gave your fathers, provided they are careful to do all I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. So man, this is a picture of how bad it got. So they're putting, he's putting idols in the temple of God and then in the temple court areas. He's filling Jerusalem with bloodshed. He's worshiping all these other gods, and it says there's more evil. Among God's people at this point in time, than even the Canaanites who got kicked out of the land in the time of Joshua. So that's how bad it got. And, and then finally, in the at the end of, of Chronicles and 2 Chronicles 36, talks about the final fall of Judah. Verse 12. But the wrath of the Lord was on Judah because they rebelled against him through the sins of Manasseh and all he did. And the innocent blood Jehoiakim shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord did not want to destroy him. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. He carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple in Babylon. Then down to verse 19, let's pick it up again. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and was not ashamed before Jeremiah the prophet, nor because of the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar and broke the oath he swore to God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, turning against the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the nobles of Judah and the leaders and priests of the people transgressed more and more, following all the abominations of the nations, defiled the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent them warnings by his messengers, rising up early and sending his messengers, because he spared his people in his dwelling place. But they mocked his messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, and there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against him the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword, the house of his sanctuary, not to spare Zedekiah, or have pity on the virgins, and he led away the agent. He gave everything into their hands. So this was the, this is the end of Judah, the last days of Judah. And it says that God cried to warn the people again and again. He sent his prophets to call them to repent. They ignored the prophets. They turned to depravity. And finally, God was fed up. He had no more patience. And he sent the Babylonians in to destroy them. So this is this is the story, and Habakkuk fits in right before the end here. So he's speaking to the people of Judah. He's one of the prophets that God had sent to the people to call them back to God, and they ignored him. So figure this is this is written sometime in the decades before uh, they were taken off in captivity. So let's read Habakkuk chapter one with that background. Starting in verse one, the first four verses. I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, and actually there are some some passages in here we'll be reading that are a bit different uh, from from the, from the uh, Masoretic text. Uh, but there's a lengthy quote from Habakkuk and Hebrews chapter ten is following the Septuagint, so that's obviously what they were. What they were reading. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1 the burden of the which was which the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, O Lord, shall I cry out to you and you will not hear me? Being wronged, I cry out to you, you will not say, Why have you shown me hardship and suffering to look on misery and ungodliness? Judgment is before me and the judge takes bribes. Therefore, the law is disregarded and justice is done ineffectually for the ungodly oppress the righteous. Therefore, justice shall go forth perverted. So he has a, he has a complaint. He said, they said, the people here, this is an unjust situation, God. Why don't you do something about it? Why haven't you dealt with this? I've talked to you about this repeatedly. He said, I've cried out to you with no response thus far. And he says, ungodly people in his own nation are dominating, oppressing other people and getting away with it unscathed. He says, the ungodly are oppressing the righteous. So this is what's going on. And he says, even the judges, they're, they're, they're giving in to bribes. So I have a question for you. He says, the ungodly are oppressing the righteous. Um, Wait a minute. Doesn't it say something in in Romans chapter 3 that there are no righteous people? No, not one? And here he says, the righteous are being oppressed by the ungodly. So how does that work? If there are no righteous people? Calvinists teach that there are no righteous people based on what it says in Romans chapter 3, that everyone after the fall became wicked and totally depraved. And so, you know, if if that's right, God's response should be, you fool. What are you talking about the righteous people being oppressed by the wicked? Everybody's wicked. There's just one group of wicked people oppressing another group of wicked people. So, Habakkuk was under the impression that there were righteous people in his day and they were being oppressed by the wicked. This is the foundational scripture in Romans that the righteous will live by faith. And he says there were righteous people that were being persecuted. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23. He says, all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah, Matthew 23. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about the Lord made an example of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talks about Lot is the righteous man who was tormented in his righteous soul. So, what do we do with this statement about that no one is righteous that uh, that goes back to call in, in Romans chapter chapter three? Um the quote that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 about no one is righteous, it's a quote from Psalm 13 in the uh, Septuagint. It's equivalent to Psalm 14 in, in other Bibles. And if you compare the Masoretic text with a Septuagint, it's obvious that's what he's quoting from. And even in that, that Psalm of David, In the opening line of the psalm, David makes it clear he's addressed, the first group of people he's addressing to are people who don't believe in God. And then after that, he talks about God is among the righteous generation. So even David talks about there being righteous people in that psalm that Paul quotes and in the other ones as well. So so Habakkuk's complaint is that the wicked are oppressing the righteous and God's doing nothing about it. Uh God answers his complaint, and it's not the answer he was looking for. In verse 5, Behold, you scoffers, take notice, look and be amazed, and be gone. For I am working a work in your days which you would not believe even if someone told it to you. For behold, I'm raising up against you the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation that marches through the breadth of the earth to take possession of dwellings that are not theirs. He is terrible and awesome. His judgment and dignity proceeds from himself. Their horses bound more swiftly than leopards. They're more fierce than the wolves of Arabia. His horsemen will ride out far away. They'll spread out from afar. They'll fly as eagles, eager for food. Destruction will come upon the ungodly opposing their advances from the opposite side, and like sand will he gather the captivity. He'll revel in kings, and princes will be his plaything. He shall mock every fortified city and put a siege mound and capture it. Then he'll change his spirit and will pass through, and he'll make atonement, saying, this strength is from my God. So, Habakkuk's complaint is, why are you allowing the unrighteous people to persecute and oppress the righteous? And God's answer is, their day is coming. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, a ruthless people who will destroy the ungodly people of Judah and wipe out even their fortified cities that they're putting all their their confidence in, the walled cities. And God will use the Chaldeans, who were a wicked, godless, idolatrous people, to be his instruments of justice against Judah. So, and then it seems to me that he's saying that, and after the Chaldeans, the Babylonians wipe you out, uh, they're going to give credit to their own God for doing that. That's That's what it seems like to me. So. That's not the answer that Habakkuk wanted, and he follows up with another complaint to the Lord. He's thinking about this. He says, wait a minute. Okay, you're bringing up a people who are even more wicked than the wicked people in our nation, and they're going to obliterate everything. They're They're going to take over the cities. They're going to wipe out the whole nation, the righteous with the unrighteous. So he pushes back and he's questioning God. I mean, how many other examples can you think of where there were prophets who were close to God, who were questioning what God was doing? They said, you know, this doesn't seem to be consistent with your nature. You're just, you hate sin. Why would you do this? Abraham was pushing back at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, certainly you're not going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked? What if, there's, what if there's 50 righteous people there? What if there's 10? What if there's five? Moses appealed to the Lord after the incident with the golden calf where the Lord says, I'm going to wipe out this entire idolatrous nation. And I'm going to make a, have a new nation starting from you. And Moses appeals and says, please don't do that. The Egyptians will hear this is not going to do well. So, so Moses pushes back to God. Job is questioning the Lord. Why did you bring all this horrible stuff on me? I've been a righteous man. I've been a, a. I've led a blameless life. In Job thirty-one, so God's about to do something, or God's doing something in all these situations that seems to people to be out of the nature, out of character with how they think God should be acting. Okay, so they're people who love God and are thinking this doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to be consistent with God's nature of justice and love and faithfulness and keeping his promises. Or it doesn't seem that this plan is really working and work out in God's best interest. And so they're pushing back and Habakkuk does the same thing. So let's read Habakkuk's pushback to the Lord. He pushes back and he actually, if you think about it, he's making a suggestion to God about something that might be a little better approach. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord God, my Holy One? O Lord, surely we shall not die, O Lord. You've ordered it for judgment. He's formed me to reprove for his instruction. His eye is too pure to see evil. You're not able to look upon affliction. Why then do you pay attention to those who scoff and keep silent when the ungodly swallow up the just? And will you make men be like fish of the sea? and the reptiles with no one leading them? He's brought up destruction with a fishhook, drawing it with his casting net and gathered it in his dragnets. Because of this, he will be glad, and his heart will rejoice. On account of this, he will sacrifice to his dragnet and burn incense to his casting net, for by them he has enriched his portion and his foods are choice. Therefore, he will throw out his casting net, and he will not spare to kill all the nations. So this is, it's talking about the Chaldeans are coming. This is like uh, like fishermen. It's like the people are fishing the sea, and they just swim around, and there's no leader. They're just swimming around randomly like reptiles or fish, like, like wild animals. And that the Chaldeans are going to come as instruments of God, and they're going to be pulling up the fish with fixed hooks and catching them in nets, and then sacrificing to their nets that they've used. And uh, so this doesn't seem like a good plan to so Habakkuk. He says, now, Lord, you hate wickedness. So why are you going to let the wicked people, the Chaldeans, wipe out the Jews? Uh, you're treating your people like random, leaderless, unprotected fish of the sea or captured by fishhooks and by nets. Uh, so it doesn't seem uh, to him like, Habakkuk, this is a very good idea. Seems unwise and out of character with God's hatred of evil and idolatry. And in this story, I think there's even a suggestion in verse 14. He says, you know, you're you're leading your people like fish of the sea and reptiles with no one leading them. There's no spiritual leadership. There's a suggestion there, I think. He's saying, wouldn't it be better if you had a spiritual leader, someone to to rise up to take care of God's people and to call them back to you and to defend them against their enemies and to make things right? And this reminds me of passages like in Ezekiel 34, John chapter 10, where he says that the, the people are like sheep, Having no shepherd, there's no one to protect them. There's no one to look out for them. The people are wandering and in danger. Okay, can't you just he says, well, can't you just provide a good leader to take care of the problem rather than having these wicked people come, these pagan idolatrous people? And then the Lord responds, and this is this to me is the most powerful part of the next four verses of the book here. So he's challenged God. He's made a suggestion for a better way to do things. He doesn't like God's plan. And then he stations himself on a rock, and he waits for God's response to his challenge. Chapter 2 and verse 1 is after God responds to him. He says, I will stand on my watch, mounted upon the rock, and see what he shall say to me and what I might answer when I'm reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision distinctly upon a tablet, that he who reads may flee. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, and it will come up at the end. It will not be in vain. If he should tarry, wait for him, for he will surely come, and he will not tarry. If any man should shrink back, my soul will not be well pleased with him, but the righteous shall live by my faith. So Bacchus knows the Lord's going to answer his challenge. He takes his stand on the rock, watching and waiting for the Lord. And he knows that God's going to come back strong and responding to him. The Lord's going to reprove him. And the Lord does respond, telling him he needs to write down this response so that future generations can have it, so that to tell them about things that are going to happen in the end. So he made a suggestion, why don't you just send a leader here? And the Lord says, if he should tarry, wait for him, he will surely come. And not delay. Another, another, the uh, Lexham Lexham, uh, English Septuagint says, if he is late, wait for him, because one coming will be present and he will not tarry. So somebody's going to come, there's going to be a delay. People are going to be impatient. But he says, don't shrink back. He's referred to literally here as the one who is coming. It may take him a long time, but be assured he's going to come. Mark it down, write it down. What does that make you think of? The one who is coming. Luke 7:19. John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus saying, "Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another?" You know, the Bible talks about the coming of Jesus. He, there, there, are two, there are two times when he comes. He came initially to sacrifice himself to pay the price for our sins, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So he is the coming one, and they had to wait for him, and we have to wait for him as well. So there are two different comings on the last day and his initial coming when he was born in Bethlehem. Now, regarding the second coming, Jesus and the apostles both talk a lot about this business, about he seems to be taking a long time. He seems to be tarrying, and people are tempted to abandon the faith. In Matthew 24, at the end of Matthew 24, Jesus says, Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in the due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, master that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus tells three stories to back this up. The first one is the parable of the ten virgins. He starts off in verse 1, Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven should be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil, but the wise ones took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Um. James talks about that as well, about, about uh, we need to be willing to be patient and endure in James chapter 5. Peter talked about that in Second in Peter at length in chapter 3, where people are going to be saying, where is this coming that he promised? He said he was going to come back, but there's no sign of it. Well, Jesus said it was going to be a long time. It was going to be delayed. But it said you need to wait for the one who is coming. You need to be prepared. Uh, I'm reminded of the story in Exodus where the Jews, it says when they sat down to eat the Passover lamb, they ate it in a very unusual way. It says they had to eat it with their sandals on and their staff in their hand. Now, when you go into a house to eat a meal, I mean, we have a big pile of shoes by the front door. Here, we take our we generally take our shoes off when we go in to eat, especially in ancient times, because all the filth that was on the street from the animals and everything else, the poor sanitation. You take you take your shoes off when you go into to somebody's house to 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 eat a meal. And why would you have your sandals on and your staff in your hand while you're eating the meal? Because the only reason is so you're prepared to leave on a moment's notice. But that's the way they need to, to, to take the meal. So I think Jesus is trying to tell us in, in, that uh, in, in multiple ways, God's trying to tell us we are aliens and strangers here. We're waiting for the Lord to come and we need to be prepared. And he does. Now, this statement, my righteous one will live by faith. So this is talking about the one who is coming. It will seem like he's delaying, but you need to wait for him. Don't get impatient. That's the first point here. The second point, my righteous one will live by faith. Now, this is used in Romans and Galatians. Paul is explaining why it is that the Jews are going to miss out on salvation, the ones who rejected Christ, is because they're putting their hope in the law of Moses, whereas even in the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk said, the righteous will live by faith. It's not by following the law of Moses, but the way of salvation was the way of faith. The way of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 1 and in Galatians chapter 3 when he quotes this passage. The Hebrew writers, the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 10, let's turn there, uses the same exact passage but to make a very different point and one that's extremely important for us. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. <laughs> If you compare the Septuagint with the Masoretic text of Habakkuk, you'll see that a Hebrew writer is is following the the Septuagint. Hebrews 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. So after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Then it quotes from Habakkuk. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, or some translations, the righteous to live by faith, same word. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is the setup for Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter of faith, and Hebrews chapter 12 about the importance of spiritual endurance and perseverance. The righteous shall live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul will not be pleased with him. I was, uh, several years ago, I was uh, uh, involved in a teacher's group in Boston, and uh, I read this passage from Hebrews that we just read, Hebrews chapter 10. And this is a group of, te- of, of Bible teachers that were all there in this group. And I said, where in your Bible does it say uh, he who's coming will come and not delay, but the righteous shall live by faith? And they said, well, that's about chapter 2. And I said, all right. Now, where is it said? But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And and it was, it was was I got blank stares in the room. And I said, I said, "I want you to." I said, nobody could answer the question. I said, "I said, if you can't show me in your Bible uh, at the end of the class, come up here. And I'll show you. I'll show you in my Bible where this passage is." And there was one guy in the room who was highly offended that that I was challenging his knowledge of Scripture. So he he completely ignored everything else I said. He was flipping through his Bible, trying to find where is the passage that it says, "If my sh- soul shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him." And then he realized that he, he, he heard that I had a reputation for being a practical joker and a wise guy. So he, he, he didn't know me well at the time. And he came up to me and he said, because I said, I'll show you in my Bible. He said, let me see that Bible you've got. He pulled it out of my hand, started leafing through it and realized this is a totally different Bible than any he'd ever seen before. And it was, of course, the Old Testament had a Septuagint. And I showed it. The statement if, if he shrinks back, my soul will not be pleased with him is in the Septuagint in Habakkuk chapter 2 right along with the, with the uh, with the other text right there. So we became good friends after that time and he had a a, a growing respect for the the uh, for the Septuagint but really that's the whole point of what he's saying. He says we need to be living by faith, not shrinking back. The point that the Hebrews writer is making, in Romans and Galatians, Paul makes the point, the righteous shall live by faith, meaning not by the law of Moses. In Hebrews, he's saying the righteous shall live by faith. It's it's a way of life where you can't shrink back. You have to persevere to the end. My righteous one will live by faith, and he's going to continue that way to the end. That's the point that he's making, which is tremendously Important for all of us to understand. I think in Hebrews chapter 11, the example of Moses that he gives after this, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ of greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to his reward. By faith he forsook Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king, he endured as seeing him who was invisible. So, so he was his example. He, he persevered because he had his eyes on the invisible God whom no one can see. And then it talks about Jesus endured the cross for what was set before him. In Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him endured the cross and set an example for us that we should, we should endure as he has endured to be to receive the great reward at the end. There's some other passages in Habakkuk that talk about other things. That's the most important one for Christians here, I think. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And uh in the rest of Habakkuk, he addresses some a number of sins that. The people of his time were struggling with. He warns them about those sins. He addresses the sins of idolatry, violence, drunkenness, Mm -hmm. immorality. He talked about how people would give other people wine to drink to get them drunk and then look at their naked bodies, exposed, exposed, they'd be exposed to, to to their sight. So. This is basically a form of pornography. So he's looking at lusting after other people combined with, with, uh, uh, with, with drunkenness. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19, Woe to him, saying to the wood, Awake and rise up into the dumb stone, be exalted. I think he's talking about idolatry here. It is merely a fantasy, being but a hammered piece of gold and silver. There's no living breath in it at all, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be reverent before him. I think in the the New King James it says, let all the earth be silent before him. So a sense of reverence for God and the fear of God as opposed to created things. Uh. There's a lot in here about warning people about the impending judgment of God. And obviously the people didn't take this seriously and they end up getting hauled off into captivity as a result of that. And then finally in chapter three, the closing verses here in verse 16 it says, I kept watch and my belly trembled from the sound of the prayer of my lips. And trembling penetrated into my bones, and my very frame of mind was troubled. I shall rest in the day of tribulation to go up to the people of my sojourn. For though the fig tree will not bear fruit, and there be no grapes on the vines, and the labor of the olive tree fail, and the fields yield no food, though the sheep have no pasture, there be no oxen in the cribs, Yet I will glory in the Lord. I will rejoice in God my Savior. The Lord is my strength. He will direct my feet to the end. He will set me on high places so to conquer by His song. Come. And this is this is this is the opposite of the prosperity gospel. It's a wonderful prayer, and I would encourage anyone to pray this prayer along with the, the Habakkuk. Though there be uh, the fig tree doesn't bear fruit, there's no grapes on the vines. So everything is going terrible. I'm impoverished, yet I will rejoice in God my savior, I will glory in the Lord. He was not looking for prosperity. At the end of at the end of this, this uh of this this work here, his conclusion is that he's gonna glory in the Lord regardless of what's going on around him. It reminds me of Jesus when he says to Frey, give us today our daily bread. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I both learn to be full and hungry, to abound and suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And uh, so, the challenge here is is very simple. Uh, are you content and at peace, and can you rejoice in the Lord when the fig tree doesn't bear? There's no grape on the vines. The olive tree fails. The fields yield no food. The sheep have no pasture and the oxen are not in the crypts. When everything is going terribly, when you have nothing, can you rejoice in the Lord and be content with that? The only people who can do that, I believe, are those whose citizenship is in heaven, and who are preparing and waiting for the one who is coming, who will see the troubles in this life as light and momentary afflictions. Amen.